the start that Recall's had in terms of revenue generated, I, I, I'm shocked myself. And there's more in the pipe, there's more coming, and it's following this simple process and being completely committed to it. There's no plan B, you know, there's just plan A. And if the plan A doesn't work, there's another plan A. All right, welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. I'm Mark Whitby, and I'm very pleased to introduce you to my guest today, Will Bourne. Will is the founder of Recall Consulting, which is a recruiting firm based in Birmingham, specializing in talent acquisition consulting for startup and scale-up technology companies. Will is a really interesting guy. He's a former competitive martial artist, and you know he's been in the recruiting industry for 10 years, only recently launched his own business, Uh, And he's also just published his first book, which is called The Fight for Your Life. We're going to talk about that today. It's available on Amazon. Will, thank you for doing this. I'm really excited to talk to you. Yeah. Hey, Mark. It's nice to to see you again. Yeah. Awesome. So listen, I I think the proper place to start is with your story. I mean, we'll talk business and we'll talk, um, you know, getting into, you know, what you've learned in terms of recruiting and 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 building a business and all that good stuff. But actually, like one of the most um, important things I wanted to talk to you about is is mental health, because I think that's what your book is about, right? So right. Yeah. could you like just start at the beginning? I understand you left school without qualifications and, and kind of tr- went out into the big world. Could you like start there and tell us like yeah. even how you got into recruiting? Well, so yeah, I, I left school. Um, I, I couldn't have made more of a hash of school if I'd have tried. Um, I didn't. <laughs> it, it wasn't for me. The education system was was not something I enjoyed much of. So I left, and I think I had two two GCSEs. So if, um, you know, I think the, the kind of average national average is is five over here for you to get a, you know onto um, a, a decent kind of job. So my first job was actually washing cars. Um, for my dad, funnily enough, who was, uh, he had a, a car sales business and he used to pay me one pound an hour because I was 15 and he used to, um, <laughs> yeah. So he used to say uh, that I was lucky because he used to pick me up and drop me off home. So that was my, uh, my, my entrance into the big world of, of working and earning your own crust. Um, and there was a couple of years really like that where I, I kind of didn't really know which direction to take or, or, you know, what I was doing with myself. And it was my brother um, who kind of, um, he kicked me up the backside to uh, to take my life a little bit more seriously and, and go back to college. So I went back to college and I did all of my GCSEs and A-levels all over again, uh, begrudgingly. And then I went to university um, and I think I was, a, I was a mature student. So I was like the, the oldest one there. I think I was 920 or something like that at the time. Ended up back at university, didn't like university uh, really. Um, cause at the time I was competing, this is where my, my martial arts journey started. I was, um, I was competing, I was fighting in Muay Thai, Thai boxing. Um, and I just started to compete in, um, submission grappling and jujitsu. So I couldn't really enjoy that university side of things where people were partying hard and studying until God knows what time of the day. Cause I was having to make weight and make competition weight at different weights because the, the weight categories were different for, Muay Thai Thai boxing than they were for grappling. So one week I was, you know, 84 kilos. The next week I was, you know, up to another weight category and it was a bit difficult. So I left university after a year and I got somehow onto a graduate scheme with, um, with a bank uh, for telesales. 
Um, and I did that for uh, four and a half, five years. I moved up the, up the ranks and ended up in a regional business role. And I just didn't enjoy it. And this is where my journey into recruitment came because at the time that I left banking, it was the uh, the bonus scandals that were oh, um, yeah that was I think I think about twenty eleven twenty twelve um, and I I just wasn't enjoying being slammed on the street every day for for working for the bank. So a friend of mine who worked at a recruitment company in Birmingham at the time, who were they're quite a good company and still are actually. Um, they uh, they offered me a job uh, to start as a as a resource a researcher uh, to kind of learn the trade and work my way up from there, and that was just over ten years ago, and um, that's kind of where Amazing. my journey came to uh, into recruitment. Awesome. So so you didn't finish university. You just decided this isn't for me, and then you went to work for Barclays Bank, I think yeah. it was. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and started, so you got some good telesales experience. You got promoted uh, into a management role mm-hmm. eventually. Yeah. So how long were you with them? Five years or? Yeah, just shy of five years mm-hmm. with the bank. Yeah. So I learned, I learned awesome. a lot, you know, and I went from quite yeah. a good position in the bank to uh, uh, controlling my own diary, having a good pension scheme and um, everything that came with it after five years to just walking away from everything and taking a massive risk to say, right, I'm starting my career all over again. I was 24, I think. Okay. I've taken a massive hit in my salary. I'm getting no pension contributions or anything. So I walked away from a fair bit of money to look at the end goal and uh, to think, right, my friends told me that I can earn a lot of money in recruitment. So let's go and see if that's in fact true. And let's just yeah. talk about that for a sec, because like, Working for a bank is a pretty secure gig, right? And, you know, so you were on a reasonable basic salary. You had, mm-hmm. like, good financial benefits, pension, and, and all that. Mm-hmm. Um, and plus you had been promoted, so you had, you know, status, responsibility. Yeah. And then you go to work as a resourcer for a recruiting firm. That's, like, bottom of the, you know, of the pecking order. Mm-hmm. And, you know, taking a massive drop in salary. Why would you do that? What was, you know, what were you trying to achieve or to prove um first of all i i was not happy working mm-hmm. um in the in the environment that i was working in you know mm-hmm. like i say it wasn't helped by the the way that the media were covering the, the you know the, the banking situation because uh, if you worked at the bank you were the enemy to the to the man on the street so first wait, of all, do, you, do you think recruiters have a better reputation than bankers um I think it depends who you talk to and what narrative things. Oh, okay. <laughs> but Fair enough. Perhaps I, I didn't know much about recruitment at that point, really, and I didn't right. know kind of you know the um, some of the stigmas that's attached to being in the recruitment industry. I know now, Christ. <laughs> <laughs> but ultimately, I I was kind of sold on the fact that you can come into this industry and you can earn over a hundred grand a year, and I. I you know, I had no concept of earning that kind of money in the bank in probably 10, 15 years of working as hard I was working. And um, a friend of mine who had been in recruitment, you know, for a number of years told me the, the fruits of his labor, a house in here and a house there that he rents out and a car and I knew this and I knew that and a watch and a bag. And I was kind of sold by that. Um, and that's why I kind of took the chance to say, right, let's just start again. And in my first six months, in recruitment, I was terrible, and you know it was a bit of a running joke. A few years in, when I was doing okay, um, that I came this close to being sacked on numerous occasions. You know, I was I was just not getting, I wasn't grasping it as quickly as I think they expected me to. Um, but then, when the penny dropped, I started to actually realise, um, you know, 
what you can do in recruitment and how much you can actually get from it. Um, not just income wise, obviously you can earn good money in recruitment, but in terms of the, you know, the learns that you can, you can get from talking to different people, different cultures who are doing different things. And I started to enjoy it. And that's when I started to really kind of accelerate my, my trajectory through the ranks in recruitment. Cause I was quickly into a management role in recruitment. And um, once I, once I got my head around it and that's when I started to really enjoy it. Fantastic. Will, can you recall one of those occasions where you were, I mean, did you know at the time that you were close to being sacked or did you only learn later? <laughs> uh, <laughs> my my uh, seat was very hot. Yeah. Um, I think the MD of the company didn't say a single word to me, didn't even acknowledge my existence until I did my first deal. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I, I always oh, thought, right, I've got one foot in the grave um, in this industry. But I think uh, you know, it's a commission-driven environment. And my dad coming from car sales and him, you know, giving me the benefit of experience in that industry said, you'll always, you know, you, you, your seat will always be hot, you know, while you've got a target on your head. So, you know, always try and perform. <laughs> and he was right. All right. Awesome. So what was it? I, I'm glad to hear this, by the way, because um, some of the people I interview on the show are just seem like they're natural. They've never had a slump. They've never had a, a bad month. And they just seem to like take to it like a duck to water. And I definitely did not. I was a really slow starter in this business. Like, um, I would say even my first couple of years, I, I mean, I did well enough. I managed to hit my target and, you know, keep my job. But, um, but yeah, I, I, di I just did not know what I was doing half the time. What was it? When did it sort of click for you? And what was the, what do you think allowed that, uh, the, you to connect the dots? Um, I think it was making so many mistakes. And honestly, um, I think with the, with the six months um, that it took me to really kind of start to understand what I was doing, I think I made every mistake. You could, I think I've made every mistake that you can make in recruitment now, in honesty, yeah, anyway. Yeah, me too. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear you say that, Will, because I feel like if anything qualifies me to help other people as a coach, it's because I have made so yeah. many mistakes, <laughs> yeah. painful ones, expensive ones, and uh, hopefully learn from them, but... So well, that's, that's the yeah. key, isn't it? It's to learn from it and to apply what you've learned. And um, right. that's the one thing that martial arts taught me, in honesty, to, you mm. know, to digress into that part of the conversation was the ability to learn and, um, and apply what you've learned. You know, martial arts if, you know, will teach you a lot of things, but one thing that it, it does teach very well is, is how to listen and learn and, and apply. So all the mistakes that I was making, you know, I, I created my own process of how not to allow that to happen again. Um, and that's something that I implemented into my team um, once that team was established because there was a dropout rate, um, which was at a certain percentage. And I made like a process flow, a flow chart against which you could cross-reference um, a recruitment process from start to finish. And that would get the, the, uh, the dropout rate to near zero. Um, so it was just me cross-referencing cross my own work to make sure that I wasn't making those mistakes. Because, you know, you know yourself, Mark, when you're making so many plates spin at a, at a certain mm. speed, it's very easy to, to lose sight of the very minuscule basics, which will cost you a deal. Um, mm. And that's what I think changed my game really was, was being able to kind of look at recruitment as a, as a process, you know, this is process a, that goes to B goes to C. If you haven't ticked off part of a, don't bother going to B because you've just wasted everybody's time. 
Um, and that helped love me become it. more efficient. You know, efficiency for me was was the key. Because when I was um, top biller, um, in terms of man hours in the office, I was I was probably working the less. You know, I was doing the, the, the minimal um, hours and people were there on Sundays, on Saturdays, working till nine o'clock at night. And I was out the door at half past five, ready to go to the pub. And were you, was part of the, was that driven because of your training schedule? Like, did you, were you still competing at that stage or? No, I'd retired at that point. Um, okay. So at the point well, that let, I started. Let's I'd go retired. back because I feel like the, the martial arts story is really important part of your journey mm-hmm. and, uh, and who you are and, and, and your mindset and everything. So how, talk to me about that. When did you get into martial arts and, and how far did you get with it? So I got into martial arts when I was about 16, um, going 17. Um, and the reason that I got into martial arts, I was always very small as a, you know, as a, as a young man. Um, I didn't actually um, blossom, as, as my parents say, until I was about 16. <laughs> so I was probably about five foot five, five foot six, maybe 50 kilos, 60 kilos. So I was quite an easy target, really. Um, quite a contrast now to being 100 kilos and six foot two. Um, wow. Okay. Yeah. And the, <laughs> <laughs> that happened very quickly. Um, but the reason that I got By into By the way, it, for those who don't work in kilos, that's 220 pounds. So you're six foot two, 220 pounds yeah. thereabouts. Yeah. That's okay. Right. Um, so go back. So you were, you, you were a, a small guy and, yeah. but how did that, were you picked on? Like what, so how did I that was, lead you to martial arts? I was attacked um, in my hometown, um, which is quite, it was a rough neighborhood back then. Um, And it just left me feeling completely helpless. You know, I I was Mm. kind of at a a point where I I just had never really been attacked like that. And I'd never felt so out of my depth. Um, And it kind of shook me. Like, it can send you one or two ways, something like that. It can send you further into a shallow. You can, you know, you have to think, right, how can I allow that to not happen again? Um, so I, I started uh, Muay Thai, Thai boxing as, as kind of a confidence builder um, to try and learn how to defend myself and how to, you know, how to have confidence if that situation would arise again. Um, and I really enjoyed it. You know, I made some great friends. I learned some great lessons, but ultimately it was getting my, getting my ass whooped, uh, which is what led me to, uh, to start martial arts in the first place. Um, that exactly like you're getting <laughs> you want to avoid getting beat up so you sign up and get beat up every day exactly Listen, muay thai yeah. looks i i'm a i'm a ufc fan i like watching uh, nice. mma and um and i know muay thai is just brutal like you've got eight weapons you use your knees elbows mm-hmm. everything it looks like if you're going to start a martial art it seems like the most brutal one to like yeah. go for it's um yeah it's quite full on and uh, one of the one of the first lessons I'll never forget learning is when I when I went there because um, I'd never been in that environment before I'd never been in a martial arts gym and I'd never sparred with anybody um, and the, my very first time that I sparred it was with a it was with a, a girl and I was I didn't know I was a bit uncomfortable with it um, and I was like look you know I, I, how do I do this do, do I go hard you know do I hit you full or what and I was like I feel a bit uncomfortable with it and she said oh, okay let me help you and I was like okay cool. And she went whack right on the end of my chin and she hit me full on in the end of my chin. And she's like, now you feel better. And I was like, right, okay. And that was kind of, <laughs> that was just the culture of the place. It was just, you know, work was work and it was fun times at the same time. So it was, um, it was a good place to learn. Um, I, did, I had my first fight, um, I think it was about nine months in. And so I was training three or four nights a week. 
um, with some very capable instructors, I must say. Um, and I was terrified because this was my first time I'd actually um, consciously got myself into a fight. Um, you know, it wasn't me reacting and defending myself. It was me choosing to fight somebody and doing it in a sober environment where people were, you know, were watching. Um, my mm. friends came to watch. I had cameras and everything. And it was, it was <clears throat> quite stressful. And I thought a guy, I fought a guy from Northern Ireland who was about nine foot tall. And um, <laughs> <laughs> I was terrified. Honestly, I was absolutely terrified. Um, but I, I trained, you know, really, really hard for it. I tried to get my mind right, but I'd, I'd never really been in that environment. So I didn't know what to expect. But after that, it was kind of um, every time I got into that environment, it was a little bit more uh, comfortable. Um, and that's that's a lot of the you know the, the lessons that I took from the martial arts and applied to the you know to the working to the working life is to um, you know try and visualize as much as you can and get as much perspective as you possibly can to kind of figure out how you're going to get your way through it and then expect to get punched in the face and for it to all go straight out the window which is typically yeah what exactly <laughs> is that Mike Tyson everyone has a plan before they get punched in the face exactly. what um did you, what happened with that fight? Did you win that first fight or? <laughs> the guy got disqualified, believe it or not. Oh. Um, yeah, because it was, um, it was like a, a, an upper amateur fight. So he wasn't allowed to throw elbows and knees. And, and he, okay. he had for some reason in his head that he could throw, throw them every time in the clinch. So every time we clinched, he was throwing elbows and the ref was like, okay, you got yeah. one more and then we're going to disqualify you. And then he did it again and then he got disqualified. So it was a, it was a victory. I'll take a victory. I'll take a win. Yeah. However they come. So fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. But let me ask you this, like what, I understand the motivation to train in martial arts because you want to be, feel more confident, feel like you are, you know, not going to be put in a, in that position again of, of feeling threatened and so on. Mm. But what would motivate you to actually compete at it? Cause that's a whole nother thing. Yeah, it's a good question. And in honesty, mm. I just loved the uh, the competitive side of it, like I never liked fighting, and I and I still don't. Mm. You know, in terms of, oh, I love watching fighting and people, you know, on the UFC, like you say. Um, but I just enjoyed testing where my levels were at, um, mm. because once I started to do the um, the MMA, the um, mm. you know the submission grappling, the wrestling, um, and bring that all together to fight in an MMA environment, it was about. 12 years ago so it was quite new really to the UK and when I was doing it it yeah. wasn't in a cage it was in a, it was in a boxing ring so people were falling through the ropes they were going over the ropes it was chaos <laughs> <laughs> and it was a bit it was a bit new at the time so it was hard to know what kind of levels you were at without going to compete outside of your gym so the guys that I was competing with inside my gym um you know I was always thinking this can't be the best. This this can't be the best around, you know. So I need to compete to see what level I'm actually at. So I got signed up to my once I started submission grappling and doing the the, the jiu-jitsu, I got signed up to the nationals for um, for FILA. It was the FILA National Grappling Championship in 2019, and that was my very first um, tournament. And I was petrified again because I'd never done a grappling tournament. I'd, I'd never been in that. I'd been in a fighting environment, but never in that that kind of arena and it was a different ball game to a to a tie a tie boxing fight because um the arena is laid out differently it's very um it's very like everybody's on top of you kind of thing from one direction mm. and you've got people fighting around you and there's there's loads going on um but i really i enjoyed it in the end and i, I ended up winning gold 
Um, wow. Yeah, okay. I got a gold at 84 kilos, so I was quite happy with that. Um, and then I went on uh, the next year to uh, to win the Great British Nationals. Uh, so I got gold at the GB, um, which was at uh, 94 kilos. So I had 84, 94. And then I wanted to get another, another gold at 77. So I tried to cut to 77 kilos, and that was silly. And uh, that was ultimately what uh, what brought the you know the house of cards crashing down because that's where my injury came about. Um, as I was oh. trying to cut down to seventy seven kilos, I was about three or four percent body fat, and my uh, my well, literally my joints just snapped in my ribs, and all the cartilage and all the ligament was tore off the bone, and um, it was oh it was God. not it was not recoverable, and that's when I that's when I had to retire. Man, that's uh, that, that's quite a journey. So, what? Um, uh, by the way, my I did taekwondo when I was a kid for a couple of years, but then very recently I uh, I joined a Brazilian jiu jitsu class nice. in near near where I live, um, and unfortunately that stopped during the pandemic because you can't you know it's about as close as you can get to a, another person, right? Yeah. It's very uh, intimate, shall we say. But um, I just find it so intimidating. Like you're going in, even and the really nice people, There's it's not because of the environment. It's just so yeah. intimidating to go in where you feel like you know nothing and like they show you techniques and it just scrambles your brain. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, uh, and then you've got, you know, people and, and no one's really trying to, to, you know, people are trying to keep, keep each other safe, but it's still someone's trying to strangle you or, or whatever, <laughs> which is not, it's just way out of my comfort zone. So, um, it's a great place to be though, isn't it? I mean, being that far out your comfort yeah. zone in, a, in a, in an environment that you're not familiar with, you know, exactly. The, you know, the prospect of learning and the ability to, to develop a, a new dimension to yourself in that environment is where else can you get that? Exactly. Well, that's why I did it. Not because I liked it. It was like really scary, but um, it's because I wanted that beginner mindset again. Nice. And um, I wanted to get outside my comfort zone. And um, yeah, I, that, and, and I wanted to feel like, I think what it does is you in a really high pressure, stressful situation, you have to force yourself to relax yeah. and um, and not to freak out. And that's a really valuable uh, thing as well, right? But yeah. what, for you have been the care, what is the crossover for you with the martial arts training into recruiting? Uh, for me, it's, it's, it's structure and discipline. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the first two that kind of roll off my tongue because, you know, I've done the startup before um, but that was obviously a funded startup with somebody else's money, which is mm. a completely different ball game. And I'm sure anybody listening will know that feeling when you're doing it with your own money, um, mm. which I'm now doing with Recall. So Recall is with um, you know my savings that I've worked for, that I've earned, that I've you know sweated and lost sleep for. And it's ultimately the discipline and the um, and the commitment to making this work. You know, I wanted nothing more than a gold medal. You know, I, I had to get that gold medal when I was when I was competing. I had to win in front of my friends and my family when I was fighting MMA. You know, I couldn't I couldn't bear the thought of losing. So nothing nothing would stop me. You know, I'd be up first training, my diet would be right, whatever it may be, I would do it. And with recall now and with I suppose with, with any job that I've I've had since, you know, I've figured out what success looks like and tried to surpass it. 
ultimately how how I do that day by day. And for me, with a startup, with a startup recruitment company, with a startup desk for anybody that isn't, you know, fortunate enough yet to be doing their own startup, if you're starting a desk up, there is a structure that you can follow. You know, there is a regimented structure that you can follow to to generate clients, to generate business, to find candidates. And if you're committed to it and you're disciplined to do that day in, day out, you will get success. And I'm proving that again with Recall, you know, like we were saying prior to recording, now, the start that Recall's had in terms of revenue generated, I, I, I'm shocked myself. And there's, there's more in the pipe, there's more coming, and it's following this simple process and being completely committed to it. There's no plan B. You know, there's just plan A. And if the plan A doesn't work, there's another plan A. <laughs> Absolutely. I like that. No plan B. Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement. That's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading, and listening to business books, watching TED Talks. But by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000, when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. I, I know that you've had a really strong start to your uh, your new business, so we'll, we'll talk about that. Before we dive into that, though, um, let's talk about <clears throat> your recruiting experience working for someone else and also how that um, relates to mental health. So uh, can you tell me a little bit more about like you rose through the ranks, you were a top biller, Mm -hmm. uh, but then when did things, there was a point at which things sort of came apart for you? There was, there really was. Um, And I mean, in terms of the profile um, of of a person, I mean, I, I never really gave, gave mental health a second thought when I was competing martial arts, when I was, you know, doing my thing in my mid, mid-20s, mid early 20s. It wasn't ever on my radar. Um, and one of the biggest things that I've learned is that nobody's safe from it. You know, it doesn't matter how macho you are or how good you are at, you know, anything, martial arts or whatever it may be. You know, mental health is still one of the, the most sensitive things that you can try and protect. And three things came at once for me which ultimately knocked me clean off my perch. Um, one of it was the, the death of my stepdad, um, mm. who he just dropped dead. Um, and he, he, was, <laughs> he was 13 years in my life, and it was completely unexpected. And it was actually two weeks before he was going to marry my mum. So we just had oh. his stag do the week before, and the wedding um, was, was coming a couple of weeks later. Um, my mom's wedding dress was in the house and all the wedding favors and everything were laid out and then he's dropped dead next to them. And that just, you know, that was the final kind of, um, nail. Um, but before that there was two kind of, um, you know, catalysts to that point, one of which was the breakdown of a relationship. 
um, which was quite stressful, really. It was quite a negative experience that kind of just took a lot out of me. And the third was a, was a change in my circumstances because the commission structure was changed um, where I worked. And it, it reduced my monthly income by about three grand. Um, it was from a monthly commission to a, to a quarterly commission without there being any kind of ramp up. It was overnight, you're short three grand a month. So I had to get rid of a, you know, I had a nice car at the time that, I'd, you know, that I'd been working towards a, a nice sports car and a nice flat where I was living in a penthouse in Birmingham city centre. And it was quite a lot monthly that I'd taken on really. I was quite heavily geared against, you know, a certain um, income. And then I had to get rid of my car. I had to downgrade my, um, where I was living. Um, and all of those things just culminated. And I just, I just completely fell flat on my back. And I, you know, I fell into a, um, into quite a dark place, quite a deep depression. Um, and I didn't understand it for quite a while. You know, everybody was saying to me, just snap out of it. You know, what's wrong with you? You know, you, you know, you're a, however you old 30 year old bloke or whatever. Um, you know, you shouldn't be on medication. You shouldn't be this, you shouldn't be that and the other. And I didn't know what was going on. So I, I went to speak to the doctor. I filled out a questionnaire, which was like 10 questions. And then after that questionnaire, it was a case of, yeah, you've got impression, um, anxiety, depression. And that's, that's the diagnosis. Off you go, go and get some medication next. So back then there wasn't great health, uh, mental health care. I don't feel um, available. And which is why I think it's important that we talk about this topic and we, we make it a lot more um, accessible, you know, for anybody to come and talk about openly and be almost kind of proud of the fact that they're, that they're talking about it and that there's people that have gone through it. You know, I will give anybody the time to talk about mental health. Anybody can approach me directly that listens to your podcast and I will give them time to talk if they're struggling with anything mental health wise. Um, oh, that's awesome, man. Because it's that important, you know, when people are on their journey, there are so many things that can that can knock you down and there are so many things that can take you, you know, steps back and steps sideways. And it's difficult to be able to understand it and comprehend it. And that's what I couldn't do. I couldn't I couldn't figure it out and comprehend what was going on. If I'd have had somebody that could help and guide me through that process to say, right, this is what's happening. This is what we can do next. This is the support that is available to you. Other than just chucking, a, you know, some pills at me. Um perhaps I wouldn't have, have fallen as hard as I did. Um, mm. And this is where the book actually came from, from this this point. Because um, one of the things... So wh Will, wh when was this? I was just shy of 30. Um, I can't remember the exact point in time, okay. honestly. It's, it's kind of a little bit hazy in, in terms of my memory of it. Um, I understand. There are, there are more kind of vivid actual points that I remember than like a point in time. Mm. Um, like for okay. example, like, sorry to interrupt your, your flow. T tell me about, you were starting to talk about your book and how that, how that fits into your recovery. Yeah. So with the book, I, um, I started to journal. I started to actually write things down day by day, um, that were helping me. Um, so I could kind of create a blueprint almost as to, right, okay, this is working. Let's keep doing this. You know, this has helped. Um, this has helped me sleep because I had, I, I didn't sleep for nearly six months, past two or three hours a oh night. You know, I had horrendous insomnia. Um, and then I had to go and do recruitment the next day. It was awful. And I started to write things down that were working, that were, right, this was positive. This helped. Um, this didn't help, so let's not do that anymore. And in the end, I ended up with like 10,000 words 
So I ended up with a 10,000 word blueprint of how I dug myself out of that position where I was in a heavy insomnia, depression, anxiety state without really knowing what to do or how to kind of um, get out of it. So I made my own blueprint almost. And um, that's what the book is. So the book is effectively a step-by-step guide as to um, all of the positive things that worked for me, all of the things that I did step-by-step to get myself off medication, back to sleep. I still don't sleep very well now, but better for sure than I did for those, you know, that six month period. Um, and that's what I, I made. Um, I showed it to a couple of people who were in the, you know, the publishing industry and they said, this is, this is good. This is, this is actually, you know, worth publishing. Um, so that's what I did. And, you know, for me, if it helps one person who reads it and they get, they get a benefit from it, it's done, it's done what I wanted it to do. That's awesome. I love that. And so what the, where did the title come from? The fight of your life? Because that's, that's what it felt like at the time. You know, everything I did was a battle. It was a fight, you know. And I did feel like I was fighting for my life. It, it was that important to me that, you know, I had to get control of my life back. There's a part of the book where I talk about, you know, almost not being in control of my own kind of thoughts, feelings, and, and um, chemistry of my own body because I was dependent on this medication. Um, and I didn't want to be a slave to that for the rest of my life. You know, I didn't want to have to think, right, you know, I've got to take this in the morning and take this at night. Otherwise, I'm not going to sleep and I'm going to feel this. I'm going to feel that. I didn't want that. I, I had to get myself off the, you know, the drip feed of the pharmaceutical industry for me to to better my mental health. Um, and that's what I did. You know, I started to put these these steps into, into practice that I have detailed in the book. And um, I just stopped medication, which is against medical advice. So anybody that listening that you know that thinks about stopping, um, you know, their medication dead to definitely seek you know medical advice in doing so. But I just stopped it um, against the advice of the doctor. Um, and I never yeah, just to be clear. We're we're not recommending that. And, no, not at uh, all. I think that you know there's a definitely a place for medical intervention. But what I um, my dad's a psychiatrist, by the way. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I told you that before. Yeah, you did. Um, but he, um, in Canada, it's a bit different to the NHS. It's really hard to get counseling on the NHS, right? It's you, the healthcare system here you, is, is more geared to like, here's your antidepressants mm-hmm. and, um, that's the treatment and it's your GP, Correct. who is treating your anxiety, right? It's not a specialist. Whereas in Canada, it's more, the GP will refer you and then you go and actually get to talk to somebody on a regular basis, mm. uh, as well as whatever med- medication might might be called for. But what I, what I like about your story is you took responsibility, you took ownership and you took control back. And, and uh, that is so, so powerful. It must've been so empowering to be able to uh, accomplish that it was it was and honestly it was a it was a step-by-step process you know it was all about mm-hmm. small wins um it was a small win for me to become um medication free it was a small win for me to sleep through the night you know to get from you know nine ten o'clock until five six o'clock the next morning that was a mm-hmm. when once that started happening again it changed my life you know that's how challenging that period was you know without with sleep deprivation it's like being drunk every day um right yeah so, yeah totally 
He was, well, he anyone was, who's had young young kids knows what <laughs> how impairing that is, right? If, if you uh, you're used to sleeping and then you you don't get the proper amount of sleep or it's interrupted yeah. constantly, then it it is it it does impair your cognitive it functioning. I, I I think yeah. Yeah, and um, there was a great book that I actually read by a guy called Matthew Walker, um, which is about, um, it's just on the topic of sleep, you know, all the studies in sleep kind of digested into something that's quite palatable, which is one of the books that I started to read at the time, which really helped. Um, Because I found that understanding a little bit more about, you know, sleep deprivation, why I wasn't not sleeping, what was influencing that, um, also about anxiety, you know, I read quite a few books on, on anxiety and, you know, the things that trigger that and the you know, the, the byproducts in your mind of, of um, anxiety and depression. And once I kind of got my head around the why, what was going on and um, what perhaps was triggering that, I could start to kind of make the plan. Um, and that's that's where it all came about. So the book is almost, it's almost like a form of NLP. Because um, I, mm-hmm. I reprogrammed my brain, you know, I, I took words out of my vocabulary um, and I would score myself day by day. So I would, I would have mm. like a, a score checking system day by day. Um, and come the end of the week, I would reward myself. And uh, my reward was a big party box of Haribo. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I went, I went from a few years of not drinking alcohol and not eating sweets and chocolate to try and make weight to now I've made up for it considerably and then some. Um, <laughs> yeah, my end of week. Uh, end of week reward was was to pig out completely pig out if I had um, stuck to the plan for the week of not saying words like would could should um, I've never said the word bad day since I started that I, I won't say I've had a bad day could you let, let's just double click on this because we can't possibly cover your whole book like in in a short you know the time we have available uh, so hopefully people will will be encouraged to go ahead and actually read it. But could, could you just give us some uh, more around that particular aspect of the language, like what words and, and sentences we say to ourselves and what, you know, what, uh, how you shifted that? Yeah, I, I made a list of words which were mm-hmm. more like the negative trigger words. Um, and I, I did everything I possibly could and I attached a, a point system to it almost. Um, that you could, you could flick to as the words are coming out of your mouth. You, you almost go, ah, oh, point, you know, point deduction, uh, foul, or whatever, you know, whatever works for you, kind of thing. Um, I so, just say cancel or 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 delete, like that wipes it wipes it away. We're we're just uh, sorry to interrupt. We're doing a thing in our house right now, which the kids are. I'm trying to get the kids into, which is, um, I noticed that there, myself included, there was too much negativity uh, in the conversations we were having around the dinner table. Mm -hmm. And so I proposed a challenge where we have to, we only say, like we focus on positive things rather than on negative things. And so the idea is you can't always control the immediate thing that comes into your brain, or you might say something by mistake, but you should immediately cancel it or say, delete. That's not what I meant. What I meant to say was, and then, you know, try and come up with a better way of saying that. Yeah, I think um, I think without kind of falling into the trap of, of cancel culture and, and you know, simply um, not being able to di- discuss topics openly, mm-hmm. I think where I went with mine is, is more down the route of you can talk about anything you want to talk about, but you have to mm-hmm. do it in a positive way. 
So even if there are mm, things that are being discussed exactly. in this example at the dinner table, there are words mm. um, which are, you know, those are the foul words. Those are the words where you'll get a point deducted and, you you know, you don't get your pudding or whatever. Um, you know, words <laughs> which would naturally incite, um, you know, a, a negative turn of the conversation. Um, right. So what, what are some examples of those words then? So the words that I I, I hate now, I, I will never use them. Um, could have done that, should have done that, would have done that. Um, those are just for me pointless, pointless words that, that they do lend, lend themselves to more of a negative narrative in your own mind. Uh, yes. so I'll stay away from those. Cause you're essentially beating yourself up or, you know, focusing on, um, feeling bad that you did or didn't do something. Right. Exactly. And you can't change that. Mm. You know, the, the only thing that you can influence is what happens today. And, yeah. you know, if your if your narrative to yourself and everybody around you is is positive, and you're you're trying to, you know, you're digesting the the narrative of others around you and trying to spin that into a positive, that's mm-hmm. only going to benefit you. It's up to them whether they they do the same or not. You can't control them, but you can control mm-hmm. kind of what's going on in there. So I now I I'll never say I've, I've had a bad day. You know, when people say to me, you know, how's the startup going? How's recall going? Have you had a bad Have you had a bad day yet? And I was like, well, no, of course I haven't had a bad day. You know, there's there's a day, there's days where I've taken two steps backward, but I know, I know I'm going to take a step forward at some point. And that for me is, is how I change the narrative in my mind, like self-talk as, as, as people mm-hmm. kind of call it, um, is one of the most important things that will help you, um, be, be more positive, you know, in your everyday engagements, you know, people that talk to me mm-hmm. now, they say you're the most positive person that I know. And it's because I'm conscious of the of the of the words that I speak, and it's conscious of yes. the actions that I take around people because I want people to think that of me. What are the What are some of the words or languaging that you replaced that you routinely like have conditioned yourself to use now on, on a habitual basis? It's about what you can learn from things. Like mm-hmm. every time you take two steps back, or every time you think that you've had a, a bad day, or you should have done something, mm-hmm. or could have or would have done something, what would you have done if you had the opportunity to do it again? You know, that's mm. all That's all I really care about. So whenever I've yeah. made a mistake or whenever I, you know, I didn't do something that I perhaps looking in hindsight should have done, why did not do it? You know, that opportunity will probably rise itself again in, an, in another, you know, disguised as something else. Mm-hmm. So learn from it. Don't dwell on mm. it. Don't sit in the past and, and think, well, oh, no, I should have done this. I could have done that. And I'd be here, right. now, you know. If I didn't, if I didn't do this, I'd be here. There's no point thinking on that. So I only think about the lessons I've learned. I've learned right. in recall already, you know, and now I, I know now I'm not going to make them again. And that's awesome. It. You know, uh, so it's sometimes it's just thinking of it, the, the situation differently. So asking yourself, okay, what can I learn from this situation? Or what is, uh, what could be a positive from, from, from this? Um, or what's a different way of looking at this situation that um, is more empowering uh, and, and is going to help me move forward or, so, or whatever. Yeah. Um, so how long did that whole process take, Will, of, you know, from the, the point where you really hit the wall to f- when you felt like you were back on your feet and things were happening for you again? Um, I'd probably say it took me uh, the best part of 18 months to get myself from you know, I can remember my lowest point. My, my lowest point is when I didn't eat for a week and I and I tried to drink myself to death. And oh my gosh. that was my lowest point. And to the point 
where I was medication free. I was back in the gym. I was starting to eat healthily again. It was about 18 months. Um, and I've actually got a photo of the first day back in the gym, um, which my friend took of me. And I hated him at the time. I was so angry at him for taking that picture of me at the time because I look dreadful. You know, I look awful. And um, I can share the picture with you if you wanted to, you know, publish that. I'm on the happy to. Yeah, sure. And um, I was I was really upset with him for, for, you know, making a joke of it. But it, I hadn't I hadn't spoken to him about what was going on. He had no idea that I was going through this this battle. Mm. Um, and looking mm. back, I'm so glad I've got that picture um, because I everybody has got a D-Day. You know, at some point in their life to where you are now, there is a day that you look back and think that's the worst day of my life. Everybody's got that. And for me, I have that reflection point. I know what the worst day in my life has been. So anything that happens now, I'm prepared for because I can't imagine it's going to be worse than that day. So I've, I've kind of got that point now logged where I'm, I'm kind of flicked to it when things are, you know, when the things are challenging. Yes. Amazing. Wow. That's such an amazing story. Now, I, I believe you are um, involved with the mental health charity Mind. Could you speak briefly on that? Yeah. So I was um, I was doing some consulting work with Mind um, where I would um, speak to, to groups of people and to do individual su- support work as well. Um, so I was helping organizations through seminars um, create better mental health within the workplace like how to mm. identify um you know mental health triggers when when people are struggling they obviously won't kind of put their hand up and say how to kind of you know look at that what kind of procedures and policies that you can put in place which will support people that are struggling mm. all based on the fact that you know my company at the time they didn't know how to deal with me no there was no there was no handbook there was there was no manual for it at that point it was just a case of uh right um go off and have a couple of weeks off or whatever and then when you come back you're on a pip and that's probably not the right way to do it um what's a pip what do you mean by pip a performance improvement plan oh okay gotcha yeah um so i wanted to help people in their in their companies create Mm -hmm. a good mental health strategy for people and then individually, I was um, I was going to their you know their individual support groups and talking to people who were um, you know applying to their charitable services um, just to try and I suppose lend an ear really not to preach but to to go in and, and to hear people's stories and to just give them whatever they need whether they need me to talk and advise or whether they need me to shut my mouth and listen you know that's what I was there to do and I learned lots from that you know what what you get back from volunteering. You know, I can't recommend enough to everybody listening. You know, if you've got time and if you've got the mental capacity to volunteer in something, what you get out of it is is insurmountable. Awesome. That's a so the website is mind m i n d dot org dot uk. If people yeah. want to check that out, it sounds like it's been beneficial for, of course, the people who you've supported, but also it sounds like you got quite a lot from it as yeah, as well. Hmm. Um, do you feel like the recruiting profession or industry is quite a, can be quite a high stress, high pressure culture where it's difficult, especially if you're like an achiever type person, then a, it's kind of like a macho culture where, you know, people are trying to, are competitive and they want to perform and it's hard to ask for help yeah i think so because i i think a lot of the um 
the cultures of recruitment companies is um, is to bill. It's just to bill. You're there to bill. You know, you've got to you've got to pay for your seat, and then you've got to generate revenue. That's all you're there to do, and that can be quite a hostile environment. You know, at times, high it is. It's obviously highly competitive, of course, and and I think that's why recruitment is is probably geared. If you look at the age demographic of people that are in recruitment, it's probably somewhere you know in their mid twenties. Um, I think any anything after thirty, and people are typically either business owners or they've left recruitment, um, because there's such a level of energy that's needing to be applied to um, you know to keep yourself on the straight and narrow when you're in recruitment, um, and it probably isn't helped by you know boiler room cultures, um, which I know still exist, but hopefully we're seeing a bit of a shift now with what's happened the last twelve months with um, yes. you know. The uh, the dreaded virus that I think people are relaxing a little bit in in terms of how people are being managed and I think there'll be a lot more flexibility in in working patterns where people can actually have mm-hmm. the break away from the office um, and have a day at home or have a day working from a different location which can give you quite a lot mentally in terms of a mm-hmm. change of scenery so hopefully now when I, when we're allowed back to work in the offices and when you know um, things return to the new normal. Um, there'll be a slight culture shift in some of these, um, you know, some of these high growth recruitment companies. Amazing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It is, it is slowly shifting. There's more awareness of, of mental health at work and, and, um, hopefully that will, that, that will continue. Um, so talking about recall, um, it sounds like you've just absolutely, taken off when we were talking before, before the podcast, um, you said that you've already hit your annual goal and you're not, we're not even finished Q1. Correct. Yeah. I'm That's incredible. Um, how, Cause how long you been, when, when did you start? Uh, January. So I am. Um, oh, I you t- literally just have just started. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, <laughs> I, I mean, normally it takes a good six months to kind of build up, uh, some momentum. Why do you think that you've taken off so quickly? Um, I mean, it, it's a it's the process. You know, I, I follow the process. It's a process that I learned through mistakes when I when I did the funded startup. No, I spent mm. six months <clears throat> thinking because I'd done recruitment before that I had people who would just naturally inherently work with me, which was not the case. You know, when you start picking up the phone in your new startup and you say, "Oh, hey, it's Will from you know new company X, Y, and Z," they're like, "No, I can't work with you." And you're back to square one. So once I got my head around that process um, and started to actually strategize, right, we're going after this market. This is why. This is how we do it. Um, that's what I've applied to recall. And you know, I've already netted like cash in the bank, the the money that I was expecting to do for the year. And I've got you know, I've got things in the pipe. I've got hopefully you know a new customer coming on today, a new customer coming on tomorrow. So it's it's growing it's growing quite rapidly and. Um, I just think it's, 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 again, it's following the process. It's doing a good job. You know, by following this process inherently, you're finding the right people for the right jobs and they're not, they're not going to be leaving early. Uh, you know, you don't have to give any rebates, which is great. Um, so that's, that's why I don't, it's not rocket science, really recruitment. I think it just takes, you know, a lot of grit and determination and, and application to the right, to the right things and you'll get there. What, so uh, remind me your your niche. I know the types of companies you're working with are are technology companies, but what sort of people are you placing within those companies? It can be anything, in honesty. Um, you know, we'll staff them out from um, from their R and D and their engineering team, software engineering teams, 
through to the to the guys that and girls that then go and sell that. Um, you know, mm-hmm. we can we can do um, co-founding. Um, you know, people that are bootstrapping to seeded to round A funding. Um, there's there's not a role I, I don't think I haven't done in tech now. I, I kind of placed every role that you could possibly imagine in a lot of different industries. And that's the value that I want to bring to companies to kind of be able to give them a, you know, a framework that I know works that reduces churn rate and, you know, the, the rate of which people leave their company early um, and bring them the right people with the right culture. Um, so I, I was working with, um, with somebody who was a cultural psychologist and we've created a framework as against how um, to assess candidates for culture. Um, so that's going to be one of the developments later this year, uh, hopefully, uh, depending on revenue. Um, is an application. Um, oh, that's cool. That a company can effectively pay a subscription for and they can run their candidates through, um, you know, to give them a cultural assessment before they make any hires. Um, cause that's wow, it. that's amazing. So that's, uh, you're actually developing your own software application, which your clients can use to improve the success of their hiring process. Absolutely. Oh, wow. That's awesome. I mean, yeah. it's, it, it's absolutely critical to have a differentiator, you know, in, in this market, which is super competitive and, and, you know, arguably um, saturated with recruiters. You have to really find ways of adding more value or mm-hmm. innovating over and above just, you know, you can't kind of just get, get by on having a great personality and being, you know, um, hitting the phone you need yeah. more you need something that uh, is really going to di- differentiate you from the competition yeah i agree i i call it the milk round you always get two kinds of salespeople. you get the people that are on the milk round who go and have a nice chat and you know they'll they'll sell a bit of milk here and there you know, or you get the people who are going out who are selling big crates you know they're going to the distribute they're selling they're selling they're selling they're selling and i've never really been one to kind of just go and have the nice conversations rely on my personality because my personality was never that great. So I had to go in, <laughs> I had to go and sell and sell and sell. Um, and again, it's, it's a process, you know, once you start ticking the right boxes for people, when you're talking to them who have got hires, you know, and you're giving them peace of mind that you can do the job for them and you've got some testimonials behind you. Um, it's just about how you get that to market and, you know, the message that you're taking. So there's always going to be a, you know, you might agree, you might not. There's always going to be a market for contingent recruitment. There's always going to be a market for contract recruitment once the IR35 market settles down in the UK. Um, but for me, I think, you know, the, the better margins that people can go after are going to be more of the services style agreements, um, you know, the MSP yeah. kind of stuff, which is, I think, where a lot mm. of the market in the UK is starting to, um, you know, to transition to, uh, like that monthly subscription model. Yes. Wow. Do I... So listen, there's so much more we could talk about. So let's say to be continued, Will, because next time I'd love to talk about today. We've like the focus was on, um, you know, the mental health aspect, which is critically important. Mm -hmm. Next time, let's talk about building a business and, and, you know, some of the things you've just touched on there to do with, you know, selling managed service agreements and, and having that recurring revenue rather than, you know, the, the peaks and troughs of contingency recruiting, that would yeah. be an awesome thing to, um, to explore. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd, I, um, I like talking about that. So if it's, it's, it's quite, a, you know, a good topic. So always good to. Awesome. 
All right, Will. Brilliant. Well, listen, thanks a lot for today. I've really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, continued success with Recall. And, and, you know, let's definitely, definitely do this again, okay? Yeah, brilliant, Mark. I appreciate it. And, you know, I appreciate the effort going into, you know, trying to raise the awareness for mental health. And, again, just to reiterate my message, if anybody wants to reach out to me, they're welcome to. Thank you, sir. And we will include a link to your book uh, on the show notes. But if they're searching on Amazon, then it's Will Bourne, like Jason Bourne, B-O-U-R-N-E. And uh, and the book is called um, The Fight of Your Life. Is that right? The Fight for Your Life. The Fight for Your Life. For the That's Fight it. for Your Life. Perfect. All right, sir. Have a great day Tom, and uh, speak to you again. Take Thanks, care. Thanks, Mark. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Resilient Recruiter. I know how busy recruiters are, so I'm honored that you're investing this time with me each week. I don't take your attention for granted. That's why I'm going all out to deliver value for you here, real insights you can apply to improve your business. And if you really want to help me to reach a wider audience and impact more people, please consider leaving the show a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you leave me a review, please reach out and let me know so I can thank you personally. Please hit the subscribe button and I'll see you next time.